Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of word, the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Well, typically, when we start a new book, uh, I give some overview notes about it, what the, uh, who the author was, uh, who the recipients were, some of the main themes. But for Hebrews, many of those things are not so clear. And that is partly because uh, the book of Hebrews takes a different form than most of the letters that we see in the New Testament. It's, in fact, it's not a letter really at all. Rather, it's more like a sermon that's been transcribed and then distributed to a certain group of people. A sermon that moves from explaining certain truths uh, to delivering stark warnings and then giving practical encouragement and then back again. And we'll see that flow as we go through the book of Hebrews. We'll see that flow happen over and over and over again. The, 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 the preacher, if you will, will say, this is true. And then he'll say, therefore, be careful. But then he'll follow that up with, but I'm confident about you. So what is this sermon about? What is this, uh, this sermon that's been written that we call the letter to the Hebrews? What is it about? What's the issue of such importance. Even this, we have to sort of piece together as we read the letter. There's not uh, too many clear statements saying, this is why I'm writing to you, as maybe Paul does in certain other letters. But it would seem that the original audience are likely Jewish Christians, possibly living in Rome, and most likely in the mid-60s A.D., And so, they're living in a time when the persecution under the emperor Nero is just beginning to happen, but has not reached uh, the high level that it will reach yet. And they're living in a time prior to Rome destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple, which, as we go through the book of Hebrews, you'll realize is actually quite important, as the book of Hebrews talks a lot about the, thing, the, the temple sacrificial system and how the Jews would go about worshiping. And so these early Jewish Christians, the issue that they're facing is that they're tempted to abandon their Christian confession. They're tempted to abandon it either by outright denying Christ and going back to being Jews, or more subtly by saying, no, we believe in Jesus We're not denying Jesus, but 
we, we kind of also want to go back to some of these Jewish forms, some of these Jewish rituals as well. We kind of want Jesus and these things also that Jesus has, in fact, actually fulfilled and ended. You see, for the first century Jewish Christian, they were already being ostracized by their own kin for abandoning the Jewish ways, the Jewish religious and cultural forms. But on top of this, while Judaism at the time had support from Rome, they had sort of a free pass from the Roman government, Christianity did not. And so, these Jewish Christians were being persecuted both by Jews and by Rome, both by people who would li- were likely there once their family members and also their government. Not to mention the fact that they, had a, they were experiencing a loss of the comfort and the familiarity that would come with all of the Jewish rituals that they had done up until their, in their life up until that point. In fact, all the Jewish rituals that their parents did and their grandparents did and their great-great-grandparents did, so on and so forth. So you can imagine they're feeling a little bit like they're on shaky ground. Now you might think, well, that's all well and good historically. That's very interesting. But what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with proclaim or us or my life? And the answer is perhaps more than you think. You see, (laughs) it starts with this. You need to understand that everyone is religious. Everyone on the face of the planet is religious. And some say they're irreligious, and others say things like, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But, but I think these are just misunderstandings. Everyone is actually, in fact, religious. It is hardwired into every single person to worship something. It is hardwired in our hearts to worship something. Something will be supreme in your heart, and whatever is supreme in your heart is the thing that you worship. And if we worship something, then the next question is, well, how do we know what that something is? And how do we approach that something? And those forms, those habits, those disciplines, that is religion, is it not? If I say, there is no God, but my life, my pleasure, my experiences are supreme to me, then I do have a God of sorts, In my mind and in my heart, I designate certain means of knowing about that God, how to come close to that God, how to get the pleasure that I want, how to get the experience that I want and draw near to my God. If I say that God is really just a a sort of consciousness that we all can be kind of gathered up into, well, then there are some ways I can know more about that consciousness. There are certain rituals or habits, maybe meditations or things that I can do that draw me near and into that consciousness. This is just religion. Or the person who says that the most important thing is preserving the world itself, creation itself. Well, the created universe has become God for that person, and they, they designate certain scientific data, perhaps, as their holy scriptures, and certain disciplines ought to be followed Or else, they would say that someone is transgressing against the world, against the universe. 
These are all examples to just demonstrate the point that everyone, to some degree, is religious. The question is, what are you worshiping? And how are you trying to get to that thing? To the degree the world is hostile to true Christianity, the temptation for us to deny Christ or to drift away by mixing Jesus with these other things grows. Undoubtedly, we've seen this happening. Undoubtedly, you've seen this happening if you've not felt it even yourself. On the other hand, what I want us to see is that many in the world, many in the world are realizing that their religions, whatever it is, even if they don't call it a religion, they're realizing that it's vapid and it's meaningless and it's empty. And they're looking for something that has substance. They're looking for not just a God, but the true God. And Hebrews tells us who that God is, how we can draw near to that God, and what we ought to do in response to that God. Hebrews tells us how we do true religion to a true God. Hebrews makes a very clear point. Christless religion is empty. But we have reason for confidence in Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, hold on, Cody. I have heard people say, and perhaps if you knew me at different times in my life, you might have heard me say this. I have heard people say that Christianity was a relationship, not a religion. And this has become a popular slogan and likely a well-intentioned one most of the time, but it is at best half true, as the book of Hebrews is going to show us. You see, we can, in fact, you can, in fact, have a relationship with the God of the universe. You can, in fact, have a relationship with your creator. But it's not like a relationship that you have with your buddy or with your neighbor or the guy you see at the coffee shop every Monday morning. God is God. He is not merely a really big and strong human. It is something, (laughs) this is something that I think even non-Christians who are aware of their sinfulness realize. We, We think when we say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, that that will be somehow appealing to those who are outside of Christianity, but in fact, it's not for those who actually understand their sinfulness, for those who are actually prepared to begin to draw near to Christ, draw near to God through Christ, is not helpful because they know they're sinful, they know they're unholy, they know that God is supreme and completely different than them, and when you say that, they go, well, I, how in the world am I going to have a relationship with that God? How could I do that? You clearly don't know me. This is something that the first century Jew understood better than the 21st century Christian. That God is holy. And we can have a relationship with him. But just as Moses, when that, burning, that bush was burning, God said, take off your sandals. Because where I am, that's holy ground. There's always a way to draw near, that we must draw near to a holy God. And Hebrews 
tells us how. Hebrews tells us how. And how is always Jesus Christ. So if God is God, then how am I to respond to him? And if God is God, then how am I to draw near to him? These are the questions Hebrews is going to answer. This is religious stuff. But before these, we have to answer a first question. And that's where we're going to start in the book of Hebrews. That's where the uh, preacher of Hebrews, if you will, starts. And the question is this, how could we, creatures as we are, even know our creator? How could we, creatures as we are, even begin to grasp in our minds who our creator is anyway? So that's the question that I want to talk about this morning. And the first point that I want to bring to your attention is this, God must reveal himself. And we're going to see this in verse 1 and 2a, uh, the first verse and a half. God must reveal himself. We have no independent ability to know God. I I want you guys to to get this. Uh, You have no independent ability to know God. You have no ability to know God on your own. Our passage starts with how God speaks to men. A friend of mine once said to me, there must be some higher power. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He said, there must be some kind of higher power, and that power must judge us in some sense after this life. But there's so many different opinions that people have. There's so many different uh, things that people say that that higher power is. How could I even begin to know which one is correct? And I would say this, he's quite right on the first point. I think sometimes we have a degree of hubris. We think that somehow we can just know God because we're, I'm me. Of course, don't you know how awesome I am? But he's quite right. How could a creature ever fathom its creator? If we think we can know God by our own effort, it isn't God we are looking to. It's an idealized or idolized version of ourselves that we've crafted in our hearts. This is precisely what we see if we look back at Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. The idea seemed so well-intentioned, I'm sure, to many people. Let's uh, build a tower up to the heavens. We just want to be with God. Isn't that a good thing? Look at how wonderful this tower is that we built. But we can't climb to the heavens, if you will. It's not, it was not a way up to the true God. It was actually an attempt to bring God down to earth. It was not a way for them to elevate them up to who God was. It was a way to bring God down to a human level. And when we try to know God in our own ways, when we try to draw near to God in our own ways, it is Christless religion, even if we throw around the name Jesus. But my friend was mistaken on the second point. Remember, he said, how could we ever even know then? How could we even know? But he was mistaken on that point. He resolved that we must therefore be helpless to know God at all. And that would be true. But Genesis 12 gives us the answer. Genesis 12.1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram. Do you remember? Abram, completely apart from God, 
God comes to him and speaks to him. You see, we're helpless on our own, but we are not alone. God is gracious to keep, uh, God is gracious to come to us and to speak to us. And so the second thing under, under this heading that I want you to understand is this, we know God because he reveals himself. We can know God because he reveals himself. There's only one reasonable way that God can be creator and we as creatures can actually know him. And that is if this completely transcendent God condescends himself, enters into his creation and reveals himself to us. We couldn't begin to wrap our mind around who God is. He's so much different. He's so much other than who we are unless he, in his power, in his omniscience, in his omnipresence, right? Unless he in his infiniteness decided to reveal himself to us who are not infinite. And this is precisely what the Bible says. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God's words, God's word spoke Adam into existence in the beginning. And God's word of blessing set the parameters of their relationship. And Adam walked with God in relationship with God in the garden, but then he sinned. His sin, his sin should have justly kept all of humanity far away from God. Yet God was gracious. And God revealed himself to Noah and to Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and to the people of Israel, and delivering them from Egypt. He called them to draw close to him at Mount Sinai, and he gave them the ten words, right, about how to live as his redeemed and delivered people. He revealed himself by prophets over and over again to call people back, his people back to him, back to the covenant that he made with them, to call them back to obedience and devotion to him. You see, Christianity is not only a revealed religion, but it is a religion that is revealed in written words. And that is not by the decision of man, but by God. God himself etched the Ten Commandments into stone. You see, we have a temptation toward a low view of the Old Testament. We can often think it is maybe a bit unreliable or maybe even bad or different in essence from the New Testament. And unless we break that presumption, we will have a hard time understanding the book of Hebrews. We'll have a hard time understanding the arguments that the preacher to the Hebrews is making. You see, verse 1 is not trying to convince anyone that the Old Testament really was speaking uh, really was God speaking to his people. Verse 1 is not trying to convince anyone that in the Old Testament, God really was revealing himself to his people. It's just stating it as fact. It's saying that's the, ba- that's the basis for building his argument, not where his argument is going to. You understand? The original audience's assumption would have been that the Old Testament was true and good. The readers would, look, would have looked to Moses and looked to Sinai and looked to the prophets with awe and reverence for what God did and who God revealed himself to be, just as we ought to also. And yet, we also shouldn't look at the Old Testament as if it's a finished 
product. Why is that? Well, this is my sort of my third sub-point under, under this, uh, this main heading that God must reveal himself, and that is that Jesus is the final revelation of God to man. You see, a new age has dawned. It says, but in, those, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't render the prophets bad or inaccurate. And even saying Jesus is better can kind of be misleading. It isn't that the Old Testament was less true and the New Testament is more true. It isn't that the Old Testament was less worthy and the New Testament was more worthy per se. They aren't two different revelations. The new is not totally different, but it is the final form and the fulfillment of all that went in the old. I'll put it this way. When, you, when a house is being built and they're putting up the walls, if you've ever seen a house being built, maybe in your neighborhood or you've driven by one or maybe you're building one, you know, maybe you wish that the, houses were, <laughs> the walls were already up. I'm sorry, I don't make it too personal. Um, but uh, but they're, they're always ha- they always have those temporary boards when they're building the walls that, that wing out. You know what I'm talking about? They, they frame out the wall, they set it up, and they put that temporary board out, and they stake it down to hold the one wall up while they're building the other wall. But then once they get all four of the walls built and they screw them all together, then they take the, the temporary supports off because the wall can stand on its own now. It's finished. You don't need those temporary supports. But when you get your house to that point, you don't, you don't look back and criticize the builders for using those supports, do you? You don't look back and go, oh, look, the wall's standing on its own now. You don't need those supports. How silly was that for them to have those then? Well, no, of course not. You appreciate those for what they were. They were necessary. It was fine to have them before. It was necessary. On the other hand, imagine, imagine if... If you're watching one of those house remodel shows, you know, and they got like the, the giant picture of how the house was that they like roll away and the family's there and then they see their house redone. And ima- imagine they roll that wall away and the supports are still attached. You'd be like, well, well hold on a second. Well, not only is that kind of ugly, but, but like, are you, are you, do you not trust that the walls can stand up on their own? Like, did the builder not trust that they screwed the walls together correctly? Like, is this house going to fall down? Like, what, what in the world is going on here? Can I not trust the final form to stand by itself? Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, speaking of the old covenant versus the new. He says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. You see, the old had a glory, but a glory that was always intended to fade out and be replaced by the permanent, unfading unfading glory. And that glory is the glory of Christ in the flesh. A glory which he goes on to say transforms all those who look to Christ in faith from one degree of glory to another. And so this brings us to the second point that I want to make This morning, Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. And we see this in verses 2b to verse 4. And this revelation is spoke to us by his Son. No one in all of history has ever truly seen or heard God outside of faith in Christ. 
But the Son is more immediately available, more immediately revealed. The Son more immediately reveals God. Now, having come in the flesh. And what an awesome play on words this is. Rather than speaking to sons through fathers, we have a communication that is directly by the Father's Son to us. The Word became flesh, and that revelation was put into words for us. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the only bridge between heaven and earth. And there are seven descriptions here in these final couple verses that are given that show why he is the greatest and the fullest revelation of God. And they're sort of a teaser. They're sort of a teaser saying, read on, listen on to the book of Hebrews and find out more about these things. And so as we go through the book of Hebrews, we're going to develop them more fully. But I want this morning to look at each of them very briefly. First, we see that Jesus is the inheritor, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The readers would have likely immediately thought of Psalm 2.8, where it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, from eternity past, was appointed the rightful heir of all things. He has always been the Son to the Father, though as we will see, it was always the plan to reveal this in history. Second, Jesus' creator. It says, through whom also he created the world. It was through Christ that the world was created. This we can see in other places like John 1.3 or Colossians 1.16 as well. The fact that Jesus has no beginning will become a major argument as to why he is not just a better way, but he is the only way to God. And he's the only one worthy of all of our worship. Next, it says that Jesus is radiator. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The idea here is that Jesus, that in Jesus, God's glory shines brightest. I love how one person put it, that just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the earth, and shines into the hearts of men and women. Jesus is the way in which we are warmed by God. He is the way that our lives are enlightened by God. Next, Jesus' representer. It says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The idea of an imprint comes from a king who would have a signet ring. And when he was going to make a decree or he's going to send a letter, he would take that ring and he would dip it in, the, in the, uh, uh, the wet wax, right? And it would leave an exact imprint of the face of the ring on that letter or on that decree. Jesus is, an act, is the exact imprint of God in his being and nature. We were, created, we were created in the image of God, but sin has marred it, yet not eliminated the image of God in us. Jesus isn't only an accurate imprint, but since he is God and since he has no sin, he is an exact imprint 
And that's why the New Testament speaks of those who have faith in Christ, that they are being fashioned now into the glory, not of God, but of Christ. Because it tells us not only the image that we are being remade into, but the means by which it happens. Next, it says that Jesus is sustainer. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. Jesus didn't only create the world, but he is constantly sustaining it. It is not as if he set uh, the world in motion and then he sits back and, and, and God, uh, as if, you know, God is just this uh, clockmaker and he, he kind of wound it up and it goes on its own. No, the God who came into his creation has always kept it spinning. The world rotates because God says rotate. The world goes around the sun because God says go around the sun. This is done, it says, by the word of his power, his, his enabling, his empowering word. The same word, listen, the same word that reveals God is the, world, the word that sustains the world. The same word that reveals God to you is the same word that sustains your very life right now. Then Jesus is cleanser. He makes, after making purification for sins, he's, all of creation has been under the weight of sin, the Bible tells us, and all of creation needs purification. Foremost, humanity, whose sin set the world under that weight. And so God is the heir of the world. He created it. He came into it. He sustains it. Would he leave it marred with sin? No. And note also that there is a change in the tense of the verb here. This purification was accomplished. It's not something that is continually happening. It was accomplished in a past act by Christ in history. It's done. It's accomplished. There's nothing else that does it but Christ alone. And there's nothing else that he needs to do. And so then we come to the last thing. Jesus is ruler. And it says that he's having done that, having accomplished purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To this, the original audience would immediately think of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus didn't just die for sin or merely rise from the dead. He was exalted to the very throne room of God. This heavenly place is what the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament represented. Where the Ark of the Covenant sat with the mercy seat on top. Where the God's presence, it says, came down and hovered like a cloud. Only one person entered into that place each year. But no one, no priest ever sat down. You need to understand that. The priests would come in and they would do all the things, all the religious rituals that they needed to do. But no priest ever would go into the holy place or the holy of holies and sit down because their work was never finished. But when Jesus died and rose again and when he was exalted to the throne room, you know what he did? He sat down because it was done. He did it. This is a majestic ending. 
to these seven descriptions of Jesus. And all of this comes to a sort of semi-conclusion, a transition really in verse 4. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And you might think, wait a second. We were talking about Jesus, we were talking about God revealing himself and speaking, and now we're talking about angels? Where did this come from? What's that got to do with anything? It's kind of out of left field, isn't it? But the, writer, the preacher, the writer here is building into an argument, and I'm going to save most of that argument for next week if they come back. But for today, I want you to know that the original audience would have understood angels to be the messengers that carried God's message from God in the throne room to the prophets and then to their forefathers. They would have understood that it was angels who came and brought God's word to Moses on Mount Sinai. That it was an angel that came and spoke to Daniel, right? There was an angel that came and spoke and gave, it was actually delivered that message to the forefather, through their forefathers. These angels were, if you will, special and powerful mail carriers for God. But listen, God isn't sending his message by the post into your mailbox. His son, God himself, came and stood in your living room, as it were, and speaks to you directly. Imagine, imagine a couple who's married, and the husband has to go far off somewhere for work or whatever, and they can't be together. And imagine for a second that this is before the internet existed, right? His letters rightly would become the most cherished possession of the wife, it would be the best way for her to know about him, the best way and to get a sense of who he is to draw near to him, right? And she would feel when she got that letter in the mail and she read it and she read the words of her husband, she would feel like, in some sense, even though he can't be here, I can draw near to him. But what would happen when he came home from that trip? It, it wouldn't be appropriate to, to trash the letters, would it? If she stood there with the letters, the trash can just, you're here. Well, that wouldn't be appropriate. They aren't rendered false merely because he's now home. You said in your letter that you wouldn't be home for a long time, but here you are. You you must have lied in these letters. No. They say something about him, about their love for one another. They can reread them together and it would enhance their relationship, enhance their marriage. But on the other hand, on the other hand, when he's standing at the door or when he's sitting in the living room, it would be wrong for her to say, oh, your letters were so good. They were so sweet. They were so well written. They touched my heart so much. And the links that you went to to make sure that you wrote them and to make sure that you got them to me, how outstanding was that? I really, I really felt loved every time I received one. I think I'd rather just stick with them. Could you go away now and could you write me some more letters? What would that reveal? That would reveal that it was never really love for her husband, was it? It was never love for her husband that brought her to read those letters or to reread them. It was love 
for herself, for how she felt, for her own needs. It was never really a desire to know her husband or to love her husband. Or else, maybe at best it was ignorance. Ignorance that now that he is at home, all that was good about the letters, all that they promised, she can have really and fully now. I want you to know everything that God's word promises, everything that it says about God, you can, through Christ, really and truly know and have right now. These first century Jewish Christians were under pressure and persecution, perhaps that we can't even imagine. Perhaps they were feeling insecure about the loss of the familiar forms and rituals that they had. And they were tempted to go back to these old ways, or at least mix the old back in, uh, and, and to ignore that, that Jesus really did come and live and die and, and, and rose from the dead and sits in the flesh in heaven before God because he sent his son. Because his son sent the spirit to actually dwell in us forever. There's no going back. There's no reason to go back. There's nothing of substance to go back to or to go to anywhere else. Outside of Christ, every religion is empty. And any area of your life not founded on faith in Christ, it will prove meaningless. This life, family, possessions, everything else, they are great gifts, but they are terrible gods. Yet God didn't leave us floating through this life with no compass. When we see God in Christ, it starts putting everything else in our life into its place. Only in Christ can we know and draw near to the true God. But in Christ, in Christ, we can be confident that we truly do know and we truly do draw near. This is what Hebrews will encourage us to do. Let's pray.